Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Trump administration says it'll provide as much as $12 million billion in emergency relief for farmers hurt by U.S. trade policy. Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska was on Morning Edition today and was sharply critical of the administration's policy. He said the administration's tariffs and bailouts aren't going to make America great again. They're just going to make it 1929 again. Let's get a perspective from someone directly affected by the new U.S. trade policies. Sean Arians is a farmer in Woodford County, Illinois, and has served in leaderships with uh, leadership roles with the Illinois Farm Bureau. Thanks a lot for joining us, Sean. Thank you for having me on, Jerome. Sean, tell us a little about yourself and, and Woodford County there and what you farm. Yeah, I am a smaller corn and soybean farmer in central Illinois. And for my operation, it's important that trade is uh, an option for me to send my commodities that I grow overseas. And that's all results in the bottom line of my operation and whether or not I'm profitable from the uh, day-to-day aspect of my business. And uh, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, was on, when he was on Morning Edition today, was saying, you know, here, here in Nebraska, we, could, we produce so much, we, we, you know, we couldn't possibly consume all that we produce. Uh, we've got the highest production land in the world, and I imagine that's true of you and all your neighbors, that they all are uh, selling – to somewhere else other than the United States. Right. We're blessed to have fertile soil in the Midwest and and what would be referred to as the Corn Belt. But we certainly need export markets as a place to go with our commodities. And we have seen and experienced that commodity groups are finding new uses for our crops. But we also realize that a lot of these existing trade markets are pretty important in making sure that we have a, a reliable export market and a place to go with our overabundance of crops that we're blessed to grow. I think most people in our listening audience here in the Chicago area probably have no idea how a farmer gets uh, customers on the other side of the planet for their product. And they think, well, you, the farmer probably turns it over to a multinational corporation who sells it on and it kind of passes through different hands. Um, what really happens? It's, it really starts with uh, where we support commodity groups. For me specifically, it's the Illinois Corn Growers, and then they have a national organization that represents national corn growers, and then for soybeans the same way. And then there's an organization called the U.S. Grains Council that also works with us, uh, very similar to Farm Bureau, promoting the interest of what we do on the farm and the commodities we raise, not just specific to corn and soybeans, but wheat and milk and and livestock from beef and pork as well. But as it relates to the the soybeans, because they seem to be at the heart of this battle, when when we go overseas and talk with people, uh, buyers specifically, uh, and I had the opportunity to be in, in Taiwan and Hong Kong and Vietnam here in March, when we speak to those processors that are making soybean oil for their customers in their respective countries, they buy U.S. soybeans or U.S. commodities because of the work done through our organizations to promote our products overseas. While the delivery happens through a multinational chain generally, which would be the ABCs of agriculture, the ADMs, the Bungies, the Cargills that that we commonly refer to, uh, it happens because of the work done with boots on the ground and the relationships built. Uh, What kind of, how do you explain the value of those relationships to you? 
Well, it, it's no different than anyone in, in a day-to-day business that we we do business with people that we, we trust. We ensure that we have a quality product. And for instance, in Taiwan, when I was there, uh, that respective company was very appreciative of the quality products we have. And for them, that results in a quality product that they can then deliver to their customers. So when, when you have a trust in a relationship, and that's what encourages the purchase transaction to happen, that's where we really see the value in U.S. products is it is safe. It's, it's a quality product that also, you know, as you process, you've got to have a start with a quality product to get a quality product at the end. And that's what they appreciate about it. And so for us as farmers, that's, that's where trade is important. Well, now it sounds like a lot of overseas customers are going to look around and sample other products from Brazil, say, soybeans from Brazil. Um, what do you think that'll do to your relationships? Can you rebuild that relationship if uh, somebody uh, kind of uh, you know interrupts it? Well, relationships can always be rebuilt, I would say. I'm, I'm a believer in that. But I think it's important really for the president and the administration to continue to work through positive trade negotiations and and keep those doors open because we don't – while the package is welcome, it's not solving the problem and we need a long-term solution. And, and that's where continue to build the relationships that have been built over the years to provide us these export markets uh, because at the end of the day, that's what helps keep us in business as farmers in the United States. So if you want to see productive trade negotiations, uh, what would that look like? Well, it, it goes back to the relationship and trust of understanding that we have a quality product and we can deliver it when it's needed. And I think that's going to be a key issue as we think about world demand for our commodities is still present. So the the commodity has to come from somewhere. And while that that chain might flow differently for a little while here. It's important that we work with our trading partners who have the relationships and understand how can we make it work for both parties and specifically to Mexico, Canada, the European union and China, uh, those relationships need to stay in force as well as by, by trying to understand how do we find that common ground where we can both agree that uh, trade is important for all of us involved and that, that we need to work towards that resolution. I'm talking with Sean Arians. He's a farmer in Woodford County, Illinois. He's served in leadership roles with the Illinois Farm Bureau, and we're talking about uh, U.S. trade policy and the tariffs. And uh, I wanted to talk more specifically about the $12 billion aid package. Um, right now, there's lower prices for soybeans. Uh, is that hurting farmers right now? Do you get the feeling like they're in need right now of help? Well, the ag economy has been depressed for several years now, and this this particular instance of trade and tariffs hasn't helped us. So it it's going to it's going to be a band aid for us, but it's and it's a recognition that trade is impacting the farmer. But at the end of the day, we really don't want a bailout. We want a solid, strong trade network that we can export our commodities to. So. The price of, of the markets has is always in flux. We always experience seasonal highs and lows that we have to manage our businesses through. 
So I think it's just really today as we see this trade and tariff issue, it, it just kind of compounds the effect of the depressed market that we've been in. Do you think it would put farmers out of business if they don't get help soon? I think most farmers, uh, at least for, for my sake, we're in this for the long haul. And that's why we all want a long-term trade solution. And that's what's going to be critical to keeping us in business is working out a, a trade deal that helps keep the, the, the prices sustained at a uh, profitable level. Today, the market is below my cost of production. So for me to sustain the long-term approach in my, my operation, I have, to, I have to have a place to go with it. And that's what we're looking for is really how do we have an export market to sustain the market? Uh, if a long-term uh, trade solution is a good idea in your mind, was the Trans-Pacific Partnership a good thing? I think as we look at trade, it's important that we have trading partners and agreements all around the world. What each one of those specifically looks like is a fairly long discussion. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we've got to find the best deal that supports American agriculture with the realization that we need a global marketplace. And that's really at the heart of our, our uh, message to the president and the administration is we need to be in all of these trade deals and we need to make sure that we have a seat at the table and those relationships stay in place so our export markets continue. All right. But in the case of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the U.S. doesn't have a seat at the table and the, all the other countries went ahead and signed the deal and called it something else. Well, I, I think that's where we're, we're trying to tell the president and deliver a strong message to the administration. We need a seat at the table. Uh, we, like I alluded to, we have a lot of organizations working on our behalf overseas. So we need to be at, at, at the table with any trade negotiation that takes place uh, to make sure that we're, our products are well represented. I took a look at the voting record of Woodford County, Illinois, which is – Eureka is a part of Woodford County, Illinois. It is a staunchly Republican place and part of the retaliatory measures that have been taken are aimed to stunt, to stunt the support of the Trump administration. Do you think that uh, what's happened will do that? Do you think that your neighbors maybe are, won't be so supportive of President Trump in the future because – uh, his trade policy has hit their pocketbook? Well, I, I think m for the most part, we're understanding that fluctuations happen in the marketplace. And while this this uh, $12 billion is certainly a recognition that it's impacted us, it, it doesn't fix all the problems. And that's why I, I think most of us are just trying to, to uh, be optimistic that hey, the, the administration is still working on negotiating. We hope that deal, uh, that they can make a deal, uh, despite not being in the Trans-Pacific Partnership or other trade deals, uh, and NAFTA is another key one. Um, but I think we're optimistic that he can deliver what he told us he would do. Sean Arians is a farmer in Woodford County, Illinois. He served in leadership roles with the Illinois Farm Bureau. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about U.S. trade policy. Thanks for having me, Jerome.
Coming up after the break, we'll continue our series, A World Without, and today we'll talk about the shortage in burial space in the U.S. and across the globe. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. On our series, A World Without, we're considering vital items that we have that are not on a sustainable path. And we've talked about some big-time needs like water and soil. Today, we are going to look into our eternal needs and talk about the shortage of burial space. Traditional beliefs, economic realities, and the law all come together to create a shortage of burial space in the U.S. It's also happening around the world in different forms. With me is Tanya Marsh. She's a law professor at Wake Forest. She teaches a course called Economy, Funeral, and Cemetery Law. She's the author of The Law of Human Remains and Cemetery Law. Thanks for joining us, Tanya. Thank you so much. How did you get into this field? Well, I practiced commercial real estate law for about 10 years before I moved to North Carolina and joined the faculty at Wake Forest. And cemeteries are just a type of commercial real estate. But as it turns out, they're a very unique uh, type of commercial real estate. And I didn't realize when I first got started in this area that the rules are so different and they operate so differently from other kinds of real estate assets. Explain what that means in practical terms, because I think a lot of us have seen uh, you know, old cemeteries in the city that uh, seem like really valuable land that nobody can go to anymore because they're all right. filled up. And right. uh, what, what 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 happens there? What happens with abandoned cemeteries or sort of how are, how are it, cemeteries different? How does it um, uh, change with a real estate point of view? I mean, there's people sure. who would like to develop that land. And I understand in countries like China, people do move cemeteries regularly and and change the whole equation if they want to, if they want the real estate. Right. So here's the fundamental thing that's different about cemeteries. So when we think about um, real property, which real estate in the United States, property professors like me talk about having a bundle of sticks. So I have the right to occupy, I have the right to transfer, I have the right to, you know, to mortgage it, to use it, whatever. I have all the sticks if I own my own house or for commercial real estate, if I own an office building, I can lease it out, et cetera. I mean, the government may tell me, you know, you can't build a nuclear power plant in the middle of a residential neighborhood or, you know, whatever. There's going to be land use and some other restrictions. But by and large, if I own real estate, I can do whatever I want. That's very different for cemeteries because in cemeteries, we actually believe or the, the law says that there's four different groups that have interests in the real property and any of them can protection of their interests can stop redevelopment um, or other kinds of use. So you have the owner of the, you know, the fee simple interest, the underlying property interest. But and this is the part that was really stunning to me uh, when I first got started. The dead have rights in the United States, and the dead have the right to undisturbed repose in perpetuity. And it is incumbent upon the living under the way the law is set up, to protect that right of the dead. So once you put a person in a grave in the United States, and this is a, a fairly uniquely American idea, 
uh, by the way, a single person, a single grave in perpetuity, once you put a person in that grave, it is very, very hard to move them. All right. I don't think most people realize that that really is the law in the United States. And it's that... a little mind-blowing to, to think that the dead have rights, but they do. All right. And it writes in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty good. So um, all, so I guess <laughs> unless we change this law, all these cemeteries are going to be there forever just the way they are. And yes. it'll be completely unchanging. Well, it, there, there are processes that you can move cemeteries. And that has happened historically many times. In Chicago, um, there's been several different um, time periods when cemeteries were moved out of the of the then you know expanding city. So the first cemetery in Chicago was down by the water. They dug everybody up and moved them out. Um, and then you've seen sort of another era where another concentric circle was relocated outward. Same things happened in New York, in Boston, in San Francisco after the earthquake and the fire in the early 1900s. They dug up practically every cemetery in San Francisco and moved everybody out to Colma, California, um, which now has, I think, like 80% of the land in that city is taken up by cemeteries, something like that. So there are ways to do it, but it's a a sort of a convoluted, expensive, time-consuming legal process called disinterment. Um, It's hard enough to do it for one person. It's much more difficult to do it for an entire cemetery. Now, one of the things I was reading was that in Seattle, they just don't have cemeteries anymore. Is that true? So Seattle is um, pretty typical of big cities in the United States, and they've outlawed further interments within the city. So there are some old historic cemeteries that are in the city, but they have a prohibition on starting any new ones. And they have a prohibition on any new burials within the city. So if you die in Seattle, you have to either choose to be buried outside of the city or choose to be cremated. What do most people do? In Seattle, the cremation rate's over 90%. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, I imagine, is like double what the cremation rate is in, in, in different places of the United States? So overall, the cremation rate in the United States went over 50% for the first time um, it, just a couple of years ago. We were in single digits uh, until about um, early 1980s for cremation in the United States, even though cremation's been around since the 1880s. So cremation was very slow to sort of catch on in terms of popularity, um, but and then the cremation rate is very uneven across the United States. So you have some places like Seattle that are driving a very high cremation rate, Las Vegas, um, a lot of the sun, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the sun and sand states that have highly mobile populations, right? People aren't from there. Um, and a lot of the more densely populated cities, but then more rural areas tend to have much lower cremation rates. So you see a, a, a bit of variety. Well, does this solve the, are we solving, in essence, our burial space issues if we uh, are just cremating at a greater and greater rate? Well, our our burial space issues at this point are primarily in cities. Um, that's where we're feeling a space crunch. And that's both because cities have outlawed further interments like Seattle has and, and New York City has and Manhattan. You can't have new burials south of 86th Street. Um, but then the cemeteries in Queens and Brooklyn and the Bronx, where you can have new burials, are, are running out of space because that city has been too densely populated for too long. Um, and we're not expanding uh, the the contours of the existing cemeteries because of land value. So cremation can help with that. But of course, there's vast parts of the United States where land's still very cheap. There's plenty of room to continue to bury people. So uh, cremation does 
sort of help that problem. And cremation rates in Europe are much, much higher than they are in the United States and have been for a long time, in part because of their own space constraints. I'm talking with Tanya Marsh from Wake Forest, and we're discussing the shortage in burial spaces. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ, and in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about Sunfest, a world music festival in London, Ontario, and playing some of the standout acts that appeared there. Um, I wanted to talk about more about what's happening in the rest of the world, because there seems to be all sorts of different levels of shortages in burial spaces in cities around the world. And um, you mentioned that Europe deals with this differently. Um, what do they do? So the European uh, tradition, which we had at the beginning of the colonial period in the United States as well, was not single person in a single grave in perpetuity. It was instead the idea... Um, you know, and this is really driven by the belief of the Christian church because, of course, you had state-sponsored religion. You had state-established churches, and most people were being buried in churchyards. The idea was it was good enough to be in the churchyard. And so you didn't have to have a single grave in perpetuity all to yourself. And so they practiced what we would call grave recycling. So a body was placed in the churchyard, and then after a period of time had elapsed, hopefully enough time for the body to be reduced to a skeleton, they would open up the grave, either push the remains down, or they'd take the skeleton out and put it into sort of a communal charnel house or ossuary that was located somewhere within the consecrated ground of the churchyard. And that way you didn't just have a single burial in a single plot, um, but you could have many, many, many burials. So for example, Trinity Churchyard in Lower Manhattan um, before the Revolutionary War, it had over 100,000 bodies in that very small churchyard. Wow. Uh, but I've been reading about places in England that right now have shortages in burial uh, space, and I imagine some of these cities you can't even recycle fast enough. Is that true? Uh, so England in the late 1800s started to get away from the churchyard model and started creating some cemeteries that look more like um, American cemeteries, the American rural cemeteries with the trees and the landscaping. And those are pretty much single person. Uh, you know, they have some family mausoleums and things like that. But there are some cemeteries in England that are sort of on the American model. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a small country. It's been densely populated for a very long period of time. So you know, at some point, we're going to have a, a space problem. Oh, what are some of the challenges that uh, other places face? I've been reading about China and some of the really big cities there, and they're expanding so quickly that they just seem to be moving cemeteries uh, at a pretty good clip. Yeah, I think, you know, I think throughout the world, if you're a culture that practices burial, if you're in a period of time where your cities are expanding quickly, you're never going to be able to keep up because wherever you choose to put your cemetery is in a couple of years going to be a place where people want to build. Um, and so, you know, the tension between the needs of the living and the interests of the dead is sort of a, a constant tension and different societies and legal systems sort of resolve that differently. Um, the United States, I think, is going to have some problems in the future because the way we chose to sort of balance those interests is to say the dead are always going to win until it's finally kind of enough and we need to make room for the living. And that's where that line is, is very hard to figure out. Well, do you expect that the U.S. will change that kind of attitude and rule and just, um, I mean, it seems like we're changing our practices already without changing the rule. 
Right. So it's it's only forbidden by law in a handful of states um, in terms of putting more than one body in a single grave. It, it's mostly a matter of the rules that are set by individual cemeteries. So if somebody wants to start a cemetery that practices grave recycling in most states in the United States, that'd be legal for them to do that today. But we have some pretty strong social norms, I think, that would push against that. And so while there are, I think, a growing group of people that would be perfectly comfortable with that and are looking for more environmentally um, and sort of land use sustainable ways of continuing to practice burial, there's there's still a lot of traditional resistance that would be encountered. Uh, I wanted to ask about caskets and casketing. I was sure. reading an article about um, this, and uh, one of the funeral directors said, well, we've got to get out of cac- casketing. It's, it's, it's something, you know, we're putting these big metal things in the ground. Right. And is that a, a problem when you want to, is that an asset when you want to move cemeteries? Is that a problem? Well, how does this work? Hmm. Well, it's more than casketing because in most cemeteries in the United States, they require grave liners or vaults, which are concrete boxes basically that go around the casket. So, you know, 70 percent of the caskets in the United States today are metal. Um, so I guess if you're trying to dig up a cemetery and you've got a concrete box and a metal casket, that at least you've got some containers that it's easier to move, although it's also much more expensive to dig all of that up. Um, but we tend not to move the more modern cemeteries that have all of that. We tend to move the older ones. Um, and those folks were buried in wooden caskets or they're just shrouded and there's no vault. Um, sometimes it's very hard to tell. You know, there, there's nothing left maybe except the casket hardware, right? Enough time goes on depending on what kind of soil you're in and the environment and all those kinds of things. There's just not much left in the grave except some discolored soil. Um, but because we have this idea that the grave is a grave in perpetuity, we kind of end up moving discolored soil to another cemetery, right? <laughs> it, it gets a little weird. I mean, at, at, at what point has decomposition occurred so much that that's not a human anymore, that's just dirt? Yeah, wow. Uh, the Are mausoleums just a better way around all this? Is that something that um, you can... Um, do that is more space effective? Well, I'm not a huge fan of mausoleums. They, I mean, in the short term, they are very space effective. But if we're building above ground mausoleums out of concrete or concrete and steel, you know, at some point, th- those are just buildings. They're going to fall apart. Um, and you can see some that have been built within the last century that are already falling apart. So the question is whether or not the cemetery um, where the mausoleum is located is going to have enough money in the future in perpetuity, right? Because this is I mean, forever is just a really long time for us to sort of contemplate and wrap our heads around. Um, I don't know any concrete building is going to last forever. So then the question is, what are we going to do, right, when it it doesn't? Is it hard for cemeteries to make money? I imagine, I can imagine it's just not really productive use of land and uh, somebody owns a whole lot of it. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority numerically speaking, the vast majority of cemeteries in the United States are not in the money-making business. Uh, They're family cemeteries, they're municipal cemeteries, they're owned by nonprofits, or they're owned by religious organizations. Uh, They're just trying to make enough money to maintain the cemeteries and to to keep it going. In in many states, cemeteries are exempt from property taxes, especially if they're in one of those categories. So they don't have that expense. They're just trying to sort of maintain uh, the surface. Although, you know, 
it can be really problematic because monuments like those obelisks, right? They, you know, trees grow roots and things get up uprooted and pushed over. I mean, you you can have a lot of problems just with the monumentation in a cemetery, and those can be quite expensive uh, to maintain. But there are some for-profit cemeteries in, in the United States, and there are some publicly traded corporations that own some of them, and they are quite profitable. Um, but those tend to be larger and located in, in large urban areas. What about digging down in the ground and creating huge underground vaults. I was reading about one in Israel, and it seems to be being done by a for-profit corporation that wants to attract people who want to be buried in Jerusalem from mm. outside of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you do about something like that? You know, I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to look into that. And we don't have anything that sounds like that in the United States. Um, so that that'd be interesting to to look into. We we don't you know to the extent that that sounds like a mass grave. We really don't like mass graves in the United States. We have this very romantic um, attachment to the idea of a single person in a single grave with the name on the gravestone there forever. Is there a class thing with being buried where you want to be buried? If you have enough money, you can uh, get yourself a grave in the middle of the city in perpetuity, but if you don't, you're you're the cremation candidate? Well, I mean, the cost of a funeral in the United States um, without the burial place and without the vault is about $8,500. So then you you have to add in the burial space to it. That's a a lot of money for, um, you know, many, many people. Whereas you could get a direct cremation for less than $1,000 in most places in the United States. So I think there definitely is something to that. Um, You know, I mean, it's interesting because you can go into a cemetery and you can tell what the, you know, the upscale section of the cemetery is, right, by the funerary art and how ornate the the graves are, et cetera. There are some Uh, great tours of the Chicago cemeteries that you can can go to. There's some gorgeous sculpture in some of those cemeteries, and um, it, but they're all dead. <laughs> so, I mean, death's the great equalizer, you know? I mean, you, you may be in the nice part of the cemetery, but you're still dead. If you could wave a wand and make this whole thing more sustainable, what would you do? Um, the alternative that I am a big fan of is called green burial. And actually, sort of a step further is an idea called conservation burial, so the idea would be that you bury people without embalming, um, without a casket that's going to get in the way of decomposition of the remains, and without a vault. So you could do you could put them in a shroud, or you could put them in a, a, a sort of a casket that's going to degrade uh, fairly quickly. And then there's no sort of uh, artificial monumentation marking a particular grave. And then you put a conservation easement on the whole piece of land. So, you know. It, is that is that legal in all places? Uh, yeah, sure. That's that's legal in every. There's no state in the union that requires embalming. There's no state that requires a casket, and there's no state that requires a vault. Uh, the only things that would require any of those would be cemetery rules, basically, and so and social norms. So green burial places are expanding, and a lot of people are interested in this idea. I really like the idea because it sort of takes advantage of this idea of protecting the dead in perpetuity, and it uses it for the purpose of protecting green space and creating green space for the living to enjoy. So it seems like it's sort of taking care of the dead 
in a way that is sustainable in the long term and giving and giving the living an asset that we can all appreciate. Why do you side with that over something like cremation, which seems like, well, and you can do whatever you want with the ashes and, and have a final reckoning and then move on? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think everybody should pick what is most impactful and, and uh, useful and meaningful to them, right? So I don't have an intrinsic problem with cremation. I would just say that um, I have seen many people anecdotally uh, that have sort of been hamstrung by cremation. In other words, they didn't, they weren't able to find any closure. Um, they have cremated remains of family members in a closet in their house, right? Or they're holding on to it for for what purpose? Sometimes cremated remains show up at Goodwill. Um, sometimes houses are being cleaned out because somebody lost their house uh, in foreclosure and cremated remains are found within. And that's not making anybody feel better, right? That That's not giving you a ritual closure to, to the death. Um, and cremated remains, like, what are you supposed to do with them if you don't scatter them or bury them? It creates sort of this um, legal limbo. Very interesting. Uh, Tanya Marsh is from Wake Forest, and we've been discussing the shortage in burial space. Tanya is a law professor at Wake Forest, and she teaches a course called Economy, Funeral, and Cemetery Law. She's also the author of The Law of Human Remains and Cemetery Law. And uh, you've got your own podcast, Tanya? I do, Death at Sec. Death at Sec. And people can uh, check that out uh, wherever you get podcasts. It's on iTunes and everywhere you listen to podcasts. That's right. (laughs) Tanya Marsh, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the shortage of burial space. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we will go to London, Ontario, and find out about Sunfest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. That's a little music from Hannah Williams and the Affirmations. She was one of the acts at Sunfest, which is a global music event in London, Ontario. And Catalina Maria Johnson is just back from there. It was earlier this month. She's the host of Beat Latino on Vocal Low, and she writes about music and culture. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. Great to be back, and great to share a festival that actually I think people in Chicago can get to if they want to, unlike Morocco and some others that I've talked about. Absolutely. I've been to London, Ontario many times myself. My wife is family's originally from uh, Sarnia, and we would go to London for baseball games. They have the oldest 
baseball stadium that is in continuous usage in North America there, Labatt Labatt Field. And they have minor league teams. They used to have the London Tigers. Now they have the London Majors. Wow. And I would go check out the minor league teams and enjoy London, which is fun. It's a beautiful city. It has uh, not quite 400,000 people. And it has this amazing world music festival that happens every summer in July. And it is literally uh, two evenings, two days. 240 vendors, all kinds of food from everywhere in the world, and it's called Sunfest, and it was actually created by a family uh, that is uh, political refugees from Guatemala, the Cachaz, Alfredo Cachaz. So his idea was just, um, I'm going to, I think this is a great place for a global music festival, London, (laughs) London, Ontario. Kind of. I think uh, there was something missing, although uh, now over time, in the last few years, London has become incredibly diverse. This festival, by the way, it's held in Victoria Park, which is a beautiful park, a very kind of old-fashioned, what you think of as the classic kind of European-style parks. And for some time, it was also kind of in World War II, taken over for military kinds of pursuits. And so now to see it reconverted, you know, and have 24 years going on 25 of bringing people together around the music and around the food was pretty amazing. And this is, and I discovered some music that some of it I don't think we get as often here and some of it that we do. And this is Hannah Williams and the affirmation just bringing it. <laughs> bringing it to London, Ontario and Sunfest. And it sounds like straight rhythm and blues kind of singing. And where are they from? Uh, they're from uh, England. They're oh, British. Great. So it's kind <laughs> of like in that uh, Adele, you know, Amy Winehouse-ish, 70-ish funk, deep soul groove. Well, that sounds really fun. Uh, and I was looking at some of the other acts, and some of them are, are pretty well-known acts, and some of them I did not know at all. Yes, and in fact, the next act, I think she's been to Chicago, but I had not ever uh, seen Leticia Zombambwe from the Central Republic of Africa. And she has a, a lovely presence, and as many of the artists um, just kind of, there's a big communication happening at this festival, much more than I saw in others, where the artists and the families, it's very family-oriented, have kind of a a dialogue over the music and while they're dancing and eating. So here's uh, Sansa Soul. Tango, tango, We're 
We're listening to some of the music from Sunfest, a global music fest in London, Ontario. Catalina Maria Johnson is just back, and that was lovely. And I noticed on social media, and everyone should follow Catalina Maria Johnson on social media. It'll make you feel much more involved in music. Uh, and you're at Catalina Maria J. Uh, and you said that the the Sunfest was really a chill kind of environment and showed a, a video of people dancing uh, and children dancing yeah. and it wasn't crowded feeling. It actually and, is pretty crowded certain and, days so and, that, that <laughs> just don't want to um, people would be nice, surprised. It had a chill feel. But it did. Yes it does. It, it, they actually get something over 100,000 unique visits and over 200,000 repeat visits over the weekend. Oh. So it, it can be pretty packed at certain times and the lines for the food I can tell you. But what's nice about it amongst other things I don't know if it's a rule for public parks or what, but the drinking is contained. I mean, there are what they call shade areas where you can get, you know, amazing artisanal beers and all kinds of things, but they're contained and you're wristbanded on your way in, although kids can come in. So it's a very, very family-oriented environment and families from everywhere. I have to say that I've never seen that large a presence of families uh, with women wearing the hijab. That I, and that made me look it up. And of course, London has taken on disproportionately in comparison to the rest of Canada, disproportionately for its size, many more refugees, including thousands of Syrian refugees. So I think, again, kind of containing the alcohol made it made families and just feel very free. And I never thought Canadians could dance. I, I saw them. <laughs> I saw them bust some moves, let me tell you, <laughs> um, including some to, well, to really practically every Every act. I have to say this that the Kashas and Alfredo Kashas, who founded the festival, I know him from the World Music Expo that I talk about on Global Fest, and he's a great dancer. And I think curators always have that their own filter. And you could dance to everything in this festival. You could dance a lot. And of course, being Canada, there's a better relationship with Cuba. And I saw a septet, all female septet, Morena Son from Cuba from Santiago de Cuba. Amazing. And so let's hear Candela, Heat, Fire. Moreno Sun from Santiago, Cuba. They were part of Sunfest in London, Ontario. And that sounds just really authentic and uh, solid. It is, and it's so rich. I mean, uh, Santiago is known for its septets. I believe uh, Morena Son may be one of the few all-female septets. So uh, these just seven incredibly tight musicians with, I believe, four vocalists. Yeah, it's a, it was a treat to hear Morena Son for the first time. Uh, one of the other acts uh, was from Guatemala and is a new 
act. It's a, a Dr. Nativo has his first album out, and I imagine this was the first time you got to see Dr. Nativo. Indeed, indeed. Although I'd heard about him because he previously started the first rap group in Guatemala that rapped in Mayan. So Maya, <laughs> his Mayan culture is a very much a part, uh, and it was also a treat because again the founder uh, Alfredo Cachal is is Guatemalan. So I, it was a special treat to see um, somebody from Guatemala, Dr. Nativo. I have to say something about this uh, performance. It started with a Guatemalan elder, like blessing and doing four corners and then dancing while he uh, poured the incense over this music, uh, So, which is what they, Maya. And, so. and he is also integrating reggae into his sound. <laughs> and so it's kind of, it's a blended thing. And it sounds a little like Manu Chao at times. And I don't know. It's, 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 um, uh, so he's got a lot going on here. Yeah. And, and all of that happens uh, in Mayan music. I found out there's a hip hop Maya, there's cumbia Maya. And so I guess this is a little bit of uh, reggae Maya, <laughs> Guatemala. That's Dr. Nativo, one of the acts at Sunfest, a global music fest that takes place every July in London, Ontario. We're talking with Catalina Maria Johnson. That's a lot of fun. It sounds great. It was very much fun, um, and it was lovely to see people in this park that, as I mentioned, you know, had started off as a people's park. In fact, it was known as the people's park, then became kind of a mili- taken over by the military, and now it's become extremely well known for its music festivals, and including this one, uh, TD Sunfest. So it it was um, it was wonderful to me. All of the festivals especially the international music ones, they're very much what the world could be or should be. So they're always very inspiring on some level. It's like, yeah, we we can get there. (laughs) We get there every now and then. So maybe people should mark this up on their calendar. Uh, London, Ontario, it happens uh, generally on the 4th of July weekend, around there, the first weekend of July? That I don't know (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, But yes, around, I think shortly around the 4th, not over the 4th, but shortly around there. Uh, well, we're going to end. We just heard Dr. Nativo, and a new act that you've never seen before, and one of the acts that uh, is a venerable world music act, Orlando Julius, was there. Right, and um, Orlando has been uh, to Chicago 
It's a, uh, but I love the song. It's it's love your neighbor, which sort of seems to be what uh, Sunfest is all about. And uh, eat, dance, and um, listen to good music with your neighbor. Catalina Maria Jansen, a culture and music writer. You hear her on um, Beat Latino, on uh, Vocalo. Thanks a lot for joining us on Global Notes. And we'll go out with a little Orlando Julius here. And tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to continue our series, A World Without. We'll have a conversation about coffee and antibiotics, things that are under threat in this world. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Amber Fisher. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. Thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Here's a little Orlando Julius and the Afro sounds. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.